Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, we're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five, and it is Friday. With us, Ed DeVoe, retired Watertown police chief. How do you do, chief? <laughs> I'm doing great, Bradley. Thank I'm, you. I really appreciate you coming in here on the, well, the ramp up to the anniversary of the marathon bombing and the marathon bombing Watertown manhunt. You're here primarily for the latter. But first, a word about the marathon itself. I understand you have run in the Boston Marathon not one or two or three, but four times. Ran, yes, I did. Uh, ran the marathon four times, and um, you know, it's just, just a great weekend that I always look forward to. It's kind of the coming out of the spring for everybody here in Boston, and it's a great event, and I was lucky enough to run it four times. Which years did you run? I ran in uh, 99, 2000. 2007 and then in um, 2014. I don't. You, uh, how much fun is it, and how much of it is hell, and which portion is fun and which portion is hell? Uh, the training is very difficult and time-consuming. It, it, it's you know when you start doing those long runs, you're you're tied up for three or four hours um, on one, at least one of the weekend days, and then the marathon itself. It's very exciting to go out to Hopkinton. The first half of the marathon for me was fun because you still feel good. Uh, but then when the second half is always was, was always very difficult for me. Um, you start getting tired, fatigued, mentally f- fatigued. And um, if it wasn't for the crowds, uh, I'm not sure I could do it. Is there anything in the training that prepares you for the second half? Even though you do the long runs, it's just not like that second half of the marathon, right? No, no. You, as much as you do the runs, I mean, the, you know, the, the Boston Marathon is difficult because the hills are at the worst possible spot. So Heartbreak Hill really is heartbreaking. Yeah, it takes the all it saps out all your energy you have left. At least it did for me. Okay, so I have, you know, I was on the air that night and covered it for WBZ, and I also have a that's one timeline, my internal timeline. I have in front of me a timeline that comes to me from CNN just as a, a sort of basic t- mainstream timeline. And also, I have uh, you. And I would like to go through the CNN timeline and find out what your involvement and what your department's involvement was at each step of that timeline. Sure. Okay. And perhaps you, weren't in, you were not involved on Thursday yet at 5 p.m. 
Actually, probably you received some communications from officials right after the bombings themselves. Right. We we got um, some notifications through the department um, just about as the press conference was happening. So I was kind of really watching the press conference from the police station uh, when they showed the pictures of the two brothers um, and got that out into the media. So we were, most of, if people weren't involved in the investigation, other than law enforcement, were kind of just notified just prior to the, um, the news conference. And your alert level and maybe your involvement must have ramped up around 11 p.m. on Thursday when police responded to the call at, uh, at MIT concerning right. Sean Collier. Yes, um, certainly uh, our office in Watertown were made aware of that. Um, I was obviously wasn't working. I was home just kind of getting ready to go to bed um, when, when that happened. Um, but it just, even though, as we both know, there wasn't any um, connection at the time, it just felt something, something's wrong. That's the same feeling I had. There's, there's, the activity is out of the ordinary. Right. Plus, we were all on heightened alert, so that, that might have added to that feeling. Then you have, in the early hours of Friday, two suspects hijack a car at gunpoint in Cambridge at that gas station. It's interesting to see how news is. As of this telling, which is the day after, it says the suspects let the uh, hostage go. But that's not the case. He ran away. Right. Correct? Right. And I think um, we've talked about it before, is there's a lot of misinformation that comes out right away uh, so not not everything is accurate and that of course was my challenge that night is to sort out the real information from the from that kind of information and not be wrong that's the big that's the big mandate there don't be wrong now at uh, in the early hours at one point suspects pull over transform materials to their new car so they have two cars obviously they have a honda correct right and they have this new car that they have taken and they transferred materials. Do you happen to know anything about that transfer? What was sure? Transferred? Uh, they would, would after they um, hijacked the the, um, the the exchange student. They um, they traveled around and they dumped they actually dumped their car in Watertown on a side street on Dexter Avenue, and uh, took all their ammunition, all their bombs, the gun, and anything else they had and put it in and, and put it into the SUV um, and then they left their Honda back in Watertown um, and then they drove around looking for gas and they, as as we've eventually found out they their whole plan was to go down to Times Square in New York City and kill more people they knew their pictures were out there and time was short for them did you do you have the sense that this was now a suicide mission for them I believe so yes can you this, and I'm, this will come into play later on. Tell me what they had for ammunition, the amount of it, and, and the explosives. Um, they had one pressure cooker bomb still. Um, they had four or five pipe bombs. Um, and they had a lot of ammunition um, with speed loaders. Uh, so they still had more ammunition after the gunfight was over. That's so what I was, I was curious about, and I'll get to that. And now I guess it's time to drill down on the fire, get to the firefight, and we can slow down into slow motion on that. As I understand it, they're on the, they're on the run, they're in Watertown, GPS 
has alerted police there in Watertown, and they can they come face to face with one officer on one street, and it's, my reading tells me that immediately the brothers got out of their vehicles and started to fire. Is that correct? Yeah, what happened? We always so just to have everybody understand, Watertown, we're four point one square miles with thirty five thousand people. It's very densely populated. But this is the midnight to eight shift that's working now. So when they broke roll call at midnight, we had four officers and a sergeant out in the street. Uh, one of our officers was asked to take a witness um, over to Cambridge that had, had seen Deshaun Collier shooting and come home and was distraught. Um, and so we were down to three officers and our sergeant out in the street. Uh, we get notified by Cambridge uh, that they're tracking this vehicle that had been hijacked. Still, at that point, there was, still was no connection to the to that these were the marathon bombers. So when we got told that um, Cambridge had the um, the the location of the vehicle, and so my first officer, Joey Reynolds, seven years on the job, started to go into that area, and that's kind of how everything started to come together. And he pulled down the street, and they happened to be coming the yeah, other way. They, yeah, they crisscrossed each other, and now the two brothers are in two vif- different vehicles. So they uh, passed each other. Right. And then stopped. Uh, no, they continued on. In, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Reynolds, Officer Reynolds, uh, made a U-turn and started to follow them, okay. called it into the station. Uh, my sergeant, John McClellan, um, said, Joey, I'm not too far away. Let me see if, don't pull him over until I get closer. So you don't know what's going on yet, but you have your suspicion. Right, and they're, they're both thinking incorrectly that this is a carjacking and as soon as they go to pull the car over the kid's going to jump out of the car and run so they thought they were going to just chase somebody that had carjacked somebody um so um john gets closer he can dexter ave is kind of a long side street he can see joe down the street and he says okay joey light him up um but before he can do that the two brothers turn on to laurel street which is a much smaller street Typical Watertown neighborhood with two family, one families, chain link fence, asphalt, sidewalk, um, and the the two brothers in two different cars go about halfway down the street and they stop before Joe even turns his lights on, and he's only two car lengths behind them when the older brother jumps out of the car, starts running towards him and shooting, shooting at shooting just the at, one at this right, point, right, and gets right up near Joe and shooting at his windshield. Um, I I wanted to ask: Is he in the car? Has he managed to get out of the car? No, he's in his vehicle. Um, you know, and now he's in for the fight of his life, and he has to get it in reverse. Yeah, I mean, Bradley, I I've said this a lot of times. A lot of people, probably myself included, would have frozen in that situation. Um, Officer Reynolds didn't panic. Um, he's kind of trying to hide under the dashboard, but he gets it in reverse and just punches the gas pedal. Yeah. And when we talked later, he said, hey, Chief, you know, all I wanted to do was create some distance. I thought I was probably going to hit a telephone pole right. on the way back, but lucky enough, he went straight backwards and we, we created some distance. Right. And now here comes Sergeant McClellan around the corner, and you know, it's only within seconds that Joe was yelling on the radio, shots fired, shots fired. So, so Sergeant McClellan hasn't even registered that in his brain yet, and he's kind of saying, why is Joey in reverse? So he comes down the, side, the opposite side of the street on the left side, and now the bullets are coming right at him. And uh, one of the bullets comes right through his windshield, 
goes right by and ends up in the headrest behind him. Um, John thought his, his ear was so hot, he thought his ear had been shot off, but the bullet was so close to his ear, it was just felt like it was on fire. Heated air? Yeah. Wow. He was just so, so close. And, um, and now he's being shot at. Um, again, he's under control. He's calling into the station, telling them what, what's going on. So how many officers are, th- are there at this point? Two. Two. Okay. And, you know, we, we trained in law enforcement that in a critical incident like this, Bradley, you know, you don't have enough help in the beginning, and we didn't. And then you ha- almost have too much at the end. So we have two people. This is just about 1230 at night. Um, two people, and by mid-afternoon, we have over 3,000 police right. officers in Watertown. You know, so. This is a, an illustration of how fast things happen. The first officer really didn't even have time to uh, withdraw his weapon. Right. He don't have time to reach down there, unbuckle that thing. You just got to duck and put it in reverse and punch it. Yeah, he keeps shooting, and now my sergeant, John McClellan, is showing up. How about how long was the gap there? Uh, probably less than 30 seconds. Okay. I was wondering how long the first officer had to survive alone. Yeah, just Not- just really seconds. This whole incident on Laurel Street at Dexter Avenue lasted over nine minutes. The average gunfight is like in the cops' world. 15 like, seconds. Yeah, a minute would be a long time. Okay. This was much longer. And also we'll find out that things are happen in very, at very close range. They, they generally do, and this was at least a portion of this. Yes. Became that. All right, so officer number two shows up. Did he instantly uh, understand what was going on? He could see what was going on? or He was, he was wondering why officer number one was in reverse. Right. And now, and then he he hits a bullet right through his windshield and ends in his headrest, almost hits the, takes his ear off. And now he's stopped, he has his door open, and um, trying to figure out what to do. And he's, we had a patrol rifle in between the seats. He's trying to get it out, um, the muscle memory and under the stress, and he can hear the bullets coming, and he's realizing he doesn't going to have time. And, um, and Sergeant McClellan comes up with this idea that he's going to get back in his vehicle and roll his vehicle down. He, he, there's only about three trees on this street, and he can see one down the left side, and he decides to roll the cruiser down and get cover behind that tree. Um, and that's, again, something that we're not trained to do. He just thought that in. And I, just, I can't say enough about Officer Reynolds and Sarge McClellan, how well they were thinking under such duress. Was he able to, to, to execute that move? He was. And, and, and they didn't know he was out of the vehicle, so they continued to shoot at the vehicle. Um, he gets behind the tree. But as he's doing that, Officer Reynolds sees the cruiser going down and he's saying, oh, geez, the Sarge is taking the fight to them. He runs down, gets behind the vehicle, and he's shooting down range on the, on, the, on the passenger side until he gets parallel with the tree. And he looks over, and he sees the sergeant there. And he says, hey, Sarge, who's driving the car? And, he, and my sergeant says, Joey, I'll tell you later. Just get <laughs> over here. Get behind this tree. And that now the two of them are behind this tree, and the first pipe bomb comes down the street blows up and pretty much shatters all the windows in that cruiser. Yeah, can you talk about those bombs, the size of them, maybe the the power of them? Because we, we don't know what the impact something like that might have. Yeah, well, it did a lot of damage to the cruiser, that first one. It blew out all the windows, did some some damage to the doors and everything like that. So these, these if they were closer to my offices, they would have easily killed them. 
Um, they were put into a metal pipe, and so all that, all the metal exploded, and the fragments would have would have hurt anybody that was close by. What detonates those? Impact hitting the ground, or are they lit? Somehow? No, they were lit. They had fuses to them, and um, so they threw. They still shooting, but now they threw a second pipe bomb down, and they and they can see the flame being lit. You know when they're starting to throw these bombs, right? Even though it's a very you know, the street is very dark, there's only one street light on it, um, and here we are in the back streets of Watertown at just after midnight, twelve thirty in the morning, and it's the first time in this country that officers have been shot at and had bombs thrown on them, and here it is, you know, my department, and you know the neighborhood is starting to get woken up. Obviously, my lieutenant called me at home, and I had felt I had falling asleep for about 15 minutes prior to this, and he's saying, Chief, they're shooting at us and throwing bombs at us. How about how close was the, the older brother throwing the pipes? They're probably... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Probably about at that point, they're probably about 30 or 40 yards away from each other. Um, so there's no way, and it's lucky, no way he could throw the pipe that far. No, he, he, the, the, he, um, yeah, he could. If, I'd say it's like 30, not 30 yards, probably 30 feet, 30 to 40 feet. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, the, the, they could hear the tink, tink of the bomb, the bomb coming up the street. Um, and the second one that came, they went to run to get out of the way, and that didn't explode, and it was in the middle of the street, and they had the decision to make. They could have, in this driveway, they could have went over a fence around that house and back to uh, Officer Reynolds's cruiser, and they made the decision, no, we're not going to give up ground. Let's go back to that tree. Uh, and they told me later they thought it was a big tree until the next morning when they went back, and it was, it was probably 12 inches round, maybe 14 inches round, and the two of them, there's bullet holes in that tree, bullet holes in the fence, uh, my guys were really lucky they weren't weren't hurt. Any sense of how many rounds have been fired, how many magazines had been changed at this time? And this is where the training really comes in. I mean, when you you're, these guys had to change magazines and they couldn't be looking at it. They had to be walking and changing or they couldn't be looking. This is big time training right here, right? The, the two brothers, yeah. I think they were working in unison. One was kept... I'm talking uh, about the officers, actually. The, oh, the officers, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're trained. Our training, right. You don't look to get your... You know, you have you have your weapon, and then you have your additional, ma- what we call magazines, which have extra bullets on your on your, on your your holster. Um, by the time the gunfight was over, John Saj McClellan was out of bullets, and he probably had, you know, somewhere between 45 and 50 bullets on him. Um, prior to the gunfight. And uh, the brother, okay, can you continue from this point? I, I could I get more detail, but there's a lot more to go. Take it from here. Sure. Okay. So they're, they're fighting, and um, everybody's starting, all of greater Boston law enforcement is being notified that this is going on. So the whole cavalry's coming. Um, the problem is, 
a lot of officers don't know where Watertown is, and certainly they don't know where Laurel or Dexter Ave is in Watertown. So they they're coming, but it's just my officers that are there. You know, there's a, we had a couple of uh, other people that were on duty that they're there now. Um, one of my off-duty sergeants had worked a midnight shift, was at the station, heard it, and started heading that direction, Sergeant Pugilis. Um, and so they started to show up. Um, this is still going on, and it took a, a while, a couple of minutes, uh, Bradley, for, for my sergeant to understand, Sergeant McCall on the street, that it was bombs being thrown. At first he thought, he said over the radio, I think they're throwing M-80s at us. Right. And he really didn't, under, they never realized until after the fact, because you just can't slow down, that these were the Boston Marathon bombers. Of course, everybody else that's responding to the scene already, you know, had the time to think that through. And we're at the point now, just about where it, the older brother decides just to walk towards the officers firing. And he gets up to a, approximately 10 feet away. Yeah. What would happen was one of my other officers, Sergeant Pugilis, who I explained was a at the station, kind of off-duty, came down there. And he went around another side of the, down the other side. He could see Officer Reynolds and Sergeant McClellan on one side of the street. He went through the backyards. Um, and as he was going through the backyards, they still had one pressure cooker bomb. So they lit that and threw that down the street. They Obviously, they couldn't throw that very far. But that exploded and just lit up the neighborhood, like the, the flame that came out of that. Um, all the car alarms started going off. Um, and as Sergeant Pugilis came through, the he got a he got a position, and he started shooting at the two brothers, and he couldn't get a good shot at them. So he was what he was doing was skip shooting the bullets underneath, and trying to have them race across the pavement. And we know from the autopsy that he got the older brother in the leg, just what he was trying to do. And as soon as the brother got shot in the leg, he saw Sergeant Pugilis and just charged at him, started shooting, and they ended up in a driveway there about 10, 12 feet away from each other with a with a car parked in the driveway in between them, shooting back and forth. So around the car. Right, yeah, oh, you know, over the car. Over the, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and um, you know, my sergeant said, you know, said, geez, I, he's, he's a range instructor, for, uh, a veteran uh, of the service, um, very, very poised guy, and he thought he got him sent a mass a, a number of times, but... You know, it's not like the movies, it's not like video games where you get shot and you go flying backwards. So the older brother got shot probably center mass five or six times at least, but still kept fighting. And then his gun jammed, and he just threw the gun at Sergeant Pugilis and then started running up the street where Sergeant McClellan and Officer Reynolds were. And uh, Sergeant McClellan had run out of bullets, as I had said, but he was out there, and he knew he didn't have a gun now in his hand. So he stood out in the middle of the street and said, stop, and if you use a few other words, and it's, oh, but uh, I'm going to shoot you. And, you know, he's telling me he has no bullets. And I said, John, you didn't have any bullets. He goes, yeah, but he didn't know that. And he goes, I was pretending my gun was shooting by just moving my hand back and forth. And the brother stopped, and we were able to tackle him in the middle of the street, start to handcuff him, and then his the younger brother got in the, um, the Mercedes SUV made a U-turn, came down, tried to run over my offices, but ended up running over his own brother and dragged him down the street a while until they slammed into one of Joey Reynolds's cruiser that was parked at the intersection of Dexter and Laurel Street. And he was able to push that out of the way. And that's when Officer Donahue was shot. And um, we needed to go to the aid of an officer. And the younger brother, for a very short period of time, was able to flee the scene. And that's when the kind of the manhunt started 
uh, for the younger brother. And you had two officers attend to Donahue, and it was a close thing with Donahue, correct? They saved his life. They saved his life. Um, uh, Officer Timmy Menton um, had a tourniquet with him, tried to use that, uh, but the wound was so so up his thigh, he couldn't stop the bleeding, a major artery. Uh, Officer Donahue basically bled out on the scene. And he, and you know, we've had many conversations. He's lucky to be alive. Um, you know, the officers were able to get him to um, safety, uh, get him into a um, uh, an ambulance, get drive him down to Mount Auburn Hospital that was close by, and then um, the very, very talented doctors in the emergency room there um, just went beyond you know their training as well to just keep working on, keep working on him, and saved his life and. Dick Donahue's living a good life now and has had a second baby and, um, you know, God bless him. And he's just, it's just a, a very lucky that it happened. Let's fast forward to the boat and the very first inkling that police and your department had that you might have something. Uh, I guess the uh, shelter in place was ceased and folks could come out and as soon as folks were able to, a gentleman came out and saw that a boat had, a boat tarp had been moved, maybe had some blood on it. Take it from there. Right. And so, yeah, we all, uh, if you were in Boston at the time, you certainly remember that day. You know, we, with the whole day, the manhunt goes on. We do our, our grid searches. Um, and at six o'clock, the governor lifted the, the, the lockdown, if you will. Um, and um, this resident, uh, Dave Hanaberry, down on Franklin Street, uh, went out, um, he could see all day, it was a windy day, and he could see one of the straps loose on his boat and wanted to go out there. He went out there, couldn't get the strap l- tightened down, didn't understand why, and he went into, went and got a ladder to get up on a, uh, get a, he had some shrink wrap on it, but it had a zipper door on it, and he zipped, opened the door, and he could see blood on the boat. Um, then he saw feet and just ran into this house, called 911, so we get that call at the Watertown Police Department. We get notified at the command post of what's going on. The state police helicopter it, um, comes over the boat. They're giving us information. They can um, they have the heat sensors on it, and they're saying, no, there's somebody in that boat. They just moved their right foot. Their left hand is moving. So we kind of knew then fairly quickly that we had our guy. Where were you, like, and did you go to the scene? Yes, I was at the I was at the command post down at the Arsenal Mall with with the you know state police lieutenant, uh, excuse me, got Colonel um, Eddie Davis, the Boston Police Commissioner, and all a number of other law enforcement federal officials, the FBI, the governor, and everything. Um, the, well, the governor actually wasn't there right then, but he had been there most of the day, and um, so then we went down to the scene as as we brought the. Um, the armored vehicle in, pulled the shrink rack over, and, and um, slowly but methodically were able to kind of clear the boat, have him stand up, and show us that he didn't have a, bo- a bomb strapped to his chest. That was our biggest concern, that he was going to have a bomb strapped to his chest and somebody was going to get hurt. So prior to that, I mean, this, this took a while to get to the point where he stood up and some things happened. Yes. What were those things, if you can dial this down a little sure. finer? First, I... There was some. There were some shots fired, and there were some flashbangs as well. Right. What was the order of that? And can you talk about those? Sure. Um, so the the shooting was first, and what what, what occurred was, you know, we we had a lot of officers 
get down to that scene. There was a few officers up in, now they're in um, Dave Hanaberry's house looking down at the boat. And for what best we can figure out is the younger brother was on the boat and he was, they could see him moving or something was moving in the boat and it looked, trying to poke through the shrink wrap. And there was a, a gaff in the boat that had a black handle on it. And it was interpreted by the officers that it looked like a, a, a rifle mm-hmm. or a gun. Um, they sh- they, so they started to shoot. And then a lot of the other officers there. So there was a number of shots that were fired. Um, we got that stopped. Did they fire right into the boat? Yes. And um, so there was a... There was a lot of bullet holes in the in the boat. Um, the only reason the brother, the, the younger brother, survived was he happened to be behind the engine block. It just like there was, there would have, there was no place else in the boat that he would have survived except where he was. About how many rounds got into um, the boat? There, there was forty, forty to seventy, probably somewhere along that. And then, so then when we we got that stopped, that's when we had the. Um, the um, the tactical teams come in, and that's when we put the flashbangs in the boat um, to kind of neutralize him. So you put and him right in the boat. Yeah, shot him right into the boat, and probably uh, probably there was at least five that were shot over a period of time. To and then we were f- finally able to get the shrink wrap over, um, have him lethargic, if you will, and be able to get him to stand up and, and eventually surrender. So after the flashbangs, he's going to be deaf. And he's probably not going to be visually very good either if his eyes were open at the time. Yeah. So he's pretty much incapacitated by those. Yeah, and but he was still able to hear the commands that we were telling oh, okay. him you know, to, to stand up, lift up his shirt, and everything. So it, it just did take a while. I mean, this was probably that the flashbangs and getting him to stand up probably took – 20 to 25 minutes by that whole thing laying out. But the time was in our favor at that point. We could slow everything down, make sure we had the right people, the tactical teams, the armored vehicles there, and that's exactly what we did. So the I'm, I'm sure that there was the temptation to end it right there. You, you also probably had orders to not do that, if at all possible. Or you probably didn't even need the orders. You probably just knew that. Yeah, that's, that's our procedure is to try to – we're not we're not gonna um, shoot somebody um, because of you know what they did, right? You know, so but he was perceived as a threat. Yes, um, and um, but when he's had his hands up and he's lifted his shirt up, we knew that we could send tactical guys in, get him off the boat, arrest him, and you know the the plus side to that was could we find out more about what. What, what they were up to and if there was more people involved or were they loners or what. Um, what was the interrogation process right after that? Did you wait? Did you start interrogating right away? Where did he go? If you can tell me any of these things. Sure. He, he was immediately brought into um, Boston Hospital. Um, he had injuries. Um, he had, um, I think it's been well reported, he had an injury to his, to his throat. Um, and then, you know, because of it, it's a terrorist act, the FBI is in charge of that investigation at this point. So, so they had FBI agents in the, in the hospital, and they, as best they could, started the interrogation at some point fairly quickly. Okay. I guess that pretty much wraps up that portion of it. Now, 15 or so of your officers went to St. Elizabeth's with various injuries. Is that true? I read that. 
No. Okay. No. I think there were some Boston police officers that went to the hospital. Okay. But, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that because what, what happened, some of my officers did. You're absolutely right. Yeah, actually, I kind of forgot that. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, I just the, wanted to point out that 15 injuries at once is a pretty big deal for a local yeah. hospital. And they must, uh, congratulations to them for yeah. doing well. well. Yeah. They, they, um, well, what the Boston police have a great, what they call the Boston Police Stress Unit. So they met our officers as they came off the street, my, the, office, the officers I named, and everybody that was kind of involved in that gunfight. And what they recommended was they all go down to the hospital and get checked out. Um, and um, there was no, no, no one had any serious injuries okay. um, uh, of any kind. As a matter of fact, all my officers are still were on the job, still working, um, um, doing well, um, and con- all, all things considered. Obviously, there's some, a lot of trauma that goes with being exposed to what they did, uh, but all in all, they're doing very well and extremely proud of those guys. What was your sense when you saw this younger brother? Did you get a sense of him, like, I guess in terms of, was he all in, like his brother, or was he dragged along by the brother, or was that more than you can divine from that that situation? Well, it's, it seems, you know, with all the, you know, all we know now that the older brother certainly was the leader of it, but the the brother was, the younger brother was a follower, but certainly partaked in a, in a, in a lot of, things where he didn't have to and and then we all heard the stories afterwards him going to buy milk at a grocery store you know minutes after the after the bombing on Boylston Street um, didn't phase him um, didn't seem to shake him up went back to school um, like nothing happened just cold strangely cold right and probably had been cold for many years let's take a break and I want to talk about your crew your your men and I want to, the next question I'll ask you is, what about your the performance of your men made you most proud? And that's after this on WBZ. Ah! JJ Bradley J. JJ talking J. J talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 10:30. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, soldier. Do you know who's in command here? Yeah. We gotta talk. Well, when can we talk? Over there is a very capable radio. 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 Get me someone on the other end of that radio. It's Bradley J, you know. Bradley J. J talking. You hear him talking on your radio. I can hear you. WBZ News Radio 1030. We're with Chief Ed DeVoe, retired Watertown Police Chief and Chief at the time of the, the Boston Marathon Watertown Manhunt. And we've gotten through the events of that. We've gotten through recounting them. Now I'm curious. After, in retrospect, what are you most proud of when it comes to your your, your force? Just, you know, I'm and proud of the whole department. Um, you know, we um, had kind of a very rigid firearms training. Our instructors were could be really tough, and sometimes you could get frustrated at it. What but, kind of things would they be tough about? But all the rules on the range, you know, you know how to handle the gun, 
if you did anything wrong, they would stop and point it out. You know, they, you were never allowed to make a mistake without it being pointed out to you. Um, so it was kind of just drilling, 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 making sure you um, know exactly what to do, on, particularly what was important that night, you know, loading, reloading, uh, and making sure in what to do if your gun jams and how to get out of that. And um, so um, a lot of that training was was well worth it for my officers that night. So that they did the whole department, uh, but the, those guys that were right in the m middle of it, it, everybody went beyond what they were trained to do. You know, Officer Reynolds to start off with putting the car in reverse and creating space where we think that a lot of people would have froze or done something differently. He did exactly um, something that he needed to do to save his life in save others. Um, John McClellan rolling the cruiser down. We don't teach that. We didn't teach that in the, in the academies. Now we will, or they do because of that. Him pretending his gun was shooting. They don't, they didn't train him to do that. He just thought that up. Sergeant Pugilis showing up and skip shooting bullets across the pavement. I mean, they were just heroic things that they did under tremendous, tremendous pressure, bombs and guns being, being shot at them. For the record, hitting someone in the leg, skip shooting under a vehicle, right, is pretty remarkable. <laughs> it sure is. I, what are you most proud of when it comes to your your town and uh, Boston at large? I I just you know the my most vivid memory and everything is vivid uh, on this day. But you know I just wanted to get home to my wife and my family um, that night after it was over. But when, when I drove out to Mount Auburn Street, the streets were lined with people cheering the cops with American flags. Um, and then to just see that whole week, Bradley, of how the city of Boston stood up. You know, when the marathon bombs went off on Boylston Street, um, everybody helped each other. You know, runners that were stranded were brought into people's homes. There was no looting that went on. Um, for those three or four days, the Boston police will tell you that they hardly got any calls. The, the city kind of sat back and let law enforcement do what we needed to do, do that investigation. Um, the one fund that supports all those survivors and stood them up is just incredible. And everybody rallied around the theme, Boston Strong, Watertown Strong. My community was so supportive of our offices after that um, and so the whole thing, i um, very proud of the city of Boston and uh, the marathon. And, um, you know, the next year I ran the marathon with, with uh, 14 of my offices just to kind of show respect and say, this is our marathon and nothing's ever going to change. And it was important um, that we did that. Any of those officers still on the force? It's been six years now. Yes. Uh, everybody I ran with is still on the force. And um, everybody that was on Laurel Street that night is still working and, and still doing a good job. Between the time of the firefight and when he was captured, in the, the younger brother was captured in the boat, you had a lot of things to worry about that did not happen. One would be a hostage. That had to be a real possibility that that person could have gone into someone's house and taken the entire family hostage. In other words, worry about more explosives. Right. That, that was... All day, that was my biggest fear. That when we, we, we when we were doing the grid searches and we weren't coming up with anything, my fear was that he had gotten into a home, in maybe a two-family home, and killed a number of people that some of that I might know, so our officers might know. Um, Watertown's a close community; everybody kind of knows each other, and that's where my biggest fear. And 
it obviously it didn't happen, thank God, but that that's what I was worried about. Now, at the scene of the firefight, at wherever the Honda was left, was that left at that firefight scene or was that left somewhere else earlier? They dumped it to and got put all the put everything in, but then when Joey Reynolds came upon them, they was they knew the SUV was going to be got made because he jumped out. Okay. So, so they came back and we're going to get the Honda Civic. And our, our thought is that they were going to go down to New York City still in the Honda Civic instead of the the, the car okay. the car they stole. Um, so the two brothers were just got in both cars. So there was both both the vehicles were at the scene on Laurel Street. Okay. So after they left. You had to deal with that Honda. You didn't know there weren't, uh, someone had to deal with that Honda. You did not know there were not more explosives or a booby trap in that Honda. Right. We, 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 um, so we had an unexploded device on Laurel Street um, that, you know, that I had talked about earlier that didn't detonate. And then the vehicle that he, that he escaped in um, had another bomb in it. Um, so um, we had two, we had to actually, um, have people removed from those neighborhoods in the middle of the night to get them out of there for their, for their own safety. So um, so we just had a lot going on. Did you use the robot to approach the Honda? We, we Yes, we did. Okay. I guess I'm, I, that does it for me. I'm, I'm very thankful that you came out in person. That's really cool to come out late at night. I'm always very appreciative. And I uh, appreciate the way you tell the story, the sure. detail. Uh, thank you for being so forthcoming. Now into the future, what, what's the future look like for you? I know that you golf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I retired. I was 33 years on the job. I've been re- retired for uh, about four years now and um, enjoying life, doing some consulting and a few other things. I sit on the board of the Watertown Savings Bank, so it keeps me a little bit busy. And, um, and uh, you're right, I'd like to play a little bit of golf too. A lot? Uh, more than I did before, <laughs> that's for sure. And... When people say, and I know they have asked, do you miss it? What do you tell them? I miss the, I miss being around the offices, the camaraderie of it. I miss um, doing police work, um, but you know it's a big sacrifice for your family. You know, nights, weekends, you know that. Um, you know, um, it's you miss a lot of holidays, a lot of birthday parties, little league baseball games, dance recitals. It's a hard job for, for being a for being a cop. And um, so, what are your plans for this year's marathon? Um, we'll we're living right down in Copley Square. We'll be around. Um, we where my wife and I are very friendly with a lot of the survivors. There's a kind of a bond there. Uh, we're going to be going to a couple of fundraisers for Heather Abbott Foundation. One um, beautiful young lady that lost one limb and now is has her own foundation to give prosthesis to young girls and now young boys uh, so they can fulfill their life that maybe insurance company uh, would, wouldn't wouldn't uh, be able to do for them so um, is this is there still a fund for survivors that needs funding no I think the one fund has been been done and I think a lot of people that benefit including Heather and you know Jeff Bowman and a lot of the other survivors um, Patrick Downs They've all set up um, different things and do things for others because they know what the One Fund did for them. So there's some great stories there as well. So I was going to ask if you have a reunion with these people, but of course the reunion would be the marathon. Everybody comes back to the marathon. Do you do you make a, a specific plan to meet? Is there a place where you all go? You don't have to tell me where it is, but is there a place? There is. You know, there's, I, there's, there's I know times. it's secret. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for coming in. WBZ.
Boston's News Radio. And if you would like to share this interview we just had with Ed DeVoe, Chief Ed DeVoe, well, you'll be able to do that by way of the podcast. And Chief, if you want to hear what we've just what has just transpired here, the podcast is a good way to do it. And you can also share it if you like. Sure. It might be valuable because it's all kind of laid out in a timeline, and you probably haven't done that for a while. No, I haven't. All right. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, brother. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.